When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. Hey guys, just a quick note before we kick off this episode. The Culture Journalist is an independent journalism project that relies completely on word of mouth and is funded entirely by listeners. To help us keep this project going, we hope you might consider becoming a paid subscriber. For a small monthly contribution, you'll get a shout out on the podcast and other bonus goodies. You can do that by heading to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And even if you can't contribute, we hope you'll tell a friend about us, or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. And now, on to the show. Phew, well, time sure does fly when you're stuck at home in front of a computer. This week's episode, our ninth, is the last you'll be hearing from us before Election Day 2020. And... Because it's pretty hard to think about anything other than the brain-melting insanity of American political discourse right now, we thought we'd bring on one of our favorite culture writers, someone who also happens to be an intrepid labor reporter and newsroom union organizer, to discuss just that. Philadelphia-based freelance writer Kim Kelly is a columnist at Teen Vogue, the former metal editor at Noisy, and the author of Fight Like Hell a forthcoming book on a marginalized people's history of the American labor movement. She's also one of the few journalists we know who identifies openly as an anarchist and anti-fascist. This makes her the perfect person to pull back the curtain on how those fringe utopian movements, or some misguided, fact-agnostic conception of them, ended up in the crosshairs of the American culture war this year. Kim Kelly, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, babes. Great to talk to you again. It's been a minute. Got a lot to catch up on. Since we left Vice, you've been writing about everything from the labor rights of professional wrestlers to tea to hunting, anarchism, and of course, metal. What's uh, sort of the through line that unites these diverse interests that you've been pursuing and what guides your work and sensibilities these days? I suppose it's a very basic answer, but I write about the things that I'm interested in. And I happen to have, I suppose, a fairly diverse set of interests, we'll say. Um, They all do sort of interconnect, I think. It makes sense to me, right? Like, even if on first blush, like, why would this 
you know, lefty labor lady be so interested in things like tea and heavy metal and like weird death history. But if you know and me, skincare. Oh my god! I mean, the revolution will be moisturized, but we know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all. I don't know. I suppose it's just different facets of my own interests and my personality, and I try to find ways to weave them all together in a way that makes sense to normal people. And being a freelancer means that I kind of have the freedom to follow whatever weird thread or little interest or little spark that I come across. I remember I like worked with you way back when when I was at Fader and you were like writing metal pieces for me sometimes. You were like doing a lot of stuff in the metal scene. Is there a connection between metal and then your growing interest in labor reporting? Yeah, well, I mean, metal has been my life since I was 11 or 12. And it was really foundational in basically everything about my in my existence, really. Um, so that's always going to be a part of me. But that's not always been all of me. And in terms of labor stuff, I've always been a history nerd, right? And mm-hmm. I've always been very into specifically like the Victorian age and early 19th century. Like that's, you know, a hotbed of labor history and labor organizing. But I didn't really put two and two together until a little, late, a little bit later when I started reading more like more about politics and reading about revolutions and seeing how things all fit together. But in practical terms, even though I was interested in this stuff, I didn't really have much space to write about it because, as you said, I was like a metal guy. And I, yeah, I interviewed metal artists and I went on tour with heavy metal bands and I did promo for metal bands. I was kind of a a one note person in terms of career at the very least. And I really only got to the point where I could successfully pitch and write and get these stories published after I had accrued some on the ground experience during our union drive at vice which i'm sure you guys both remember and yeah and it was was, yeah that became another huge part of my life and through the course of that just through the organizing and then the bargaining and then you know learning about how to keep a union alive between contracts and bargaining another contract and dealing with the bosses like i got a a world-class education and what it means to be in a union and what it means to be part of labor and so at least to me, I felt like I'd finally kind of gotten that cred. I could allow myself to pitch stories about this. And I just kind of wiggled my way in the door that way. Part of also what has influenced your work is you identify as an anarchist and you have written a lot about anarchism. Can you talk a little bit about how that background has informed the work you're doing now? Right. Well, I mean, my work as a labor reporter The fact that I'm an anarchist, I think, is, if anything, a strength because, I mean, being a reporter, you need to understand history. And in terms of the labor movement, especially in the U.S., anarchism has been, you know, we've been there since day one, going back to like the earliest days of AFL-CIO merger, before that with the CIO, before that with the Knights of Labor, before like with the IWW, like it's, I'm just throwing a bunch of acronyms at you, I realize that, but um, there were a lot of the, the key <laughs> figures in labor history in that earlier, very consequential period were anarchists or were working with anarchists or were in the same organizing communities as anarchists. We've always been here. I mean, I kind of got into labor and anarchism sort of in the same way and around the same period, because like I said, I was reading a lot of history books. I mean, you can't read about the early history of labor in the U.S. without running into anarchism again and again. So the more I learned about both, the more I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm down with this. Um, I was already sort of, since college, kind of a a lazy Marxist 
Yeah, I guess. And the, the, the little ties between them, besides, you know, pure history, I mean, they're both fundamentally about organizing collectively to make the world better for everyone. You know, like as a as an inherent ideology, like lifting each other up and making our lives more tolerable and more enjoyable and stamping out oppression and removing the boots from our necks. Like that's very much in line with being part of labor and being an anarchist. We're not a majority, but we're not a majority anywhere. So it's and I mean, people know people know what I'm about and they don't seem to mind unless we're going to sit down and have a, a, you know, a tough ideological debate, which I don't really like doing anyway. Like as long as you're on generally the right team, I'm not going to, you know, quibble, quibble with you about, you know, smaller differences as, as I've as uh, some of my my commie friends and have, have always said, you know, we'll once we get to the revolution we'll, we'll figure it all out after we get to that point we're nowhere near that point <laughs> you know and of course today especially with the way anarchism is being depicted yeah. in the media right now there's a certain tendency for people who are not familiar to kind of bristle at the term can you talk a little bit more about the difference between what anarchism means to you versus how it's being depicted in the media right now people who are in power in the media and even people that aren't necessarily in power but don't really understand the necessity and the appeal of genuinely radical leftist politics, of course they're going to be like, oh, anarchism, that's either pie-in-the-sky nonsense, which I suppose at this juncture is the most charitable interpretation that you get, or uh, they're you know a bunch of bomb-throwing maniacs who want to burn everything to the ground and don't care about anybody else and are somehow all white men and <laughs> generally are just a chaos agent with no driving ideology or interest in human life. Obviously, neither of those are true. I'll give it to you in one respect that it is a utopian ideology. You know, the idea of building a better Mm -hmm. world, a world without hierarchy or any sort of oppression where everyone is cared for and everyone has the right to voluntarily associate. Things are organized horizontally. There are no bosses and no presidents. Yeah, maybe it is a little idealistic, but... I mean, if you're going to be dreaming about a better world, why wouldn't you dream as big as possible? You know, like a socialist government doesn't interest me because if that's the biggest dream you can muster, I kind of feel bad for you. If the biggest thing you can think of is, okay, maybe the state will be nicer to us. Come on, man. Like, (laughs) we deserve better. Right. It seems like the difference between those two things ideologically and fundamentally is that one delegates social responsibility and caring for the other to the state whereas the other takes individual ownership and responsibility yeah and it's a collective effort too i mean the difference between the way i see anarchism and the way you know your rush limbaugh's or trump's or just like general maga chuds see anarchism is you know as a threat to everything they hold dear and I also see it as, as a threat to everything they hold dear, but I want you to see me as a threat. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's some things that are not negotiable. And that is something in terms of anarchism specifically, you know, that is, that is something that, that freaks out or frightens like your more casual Democrats or center lefties, or even like the social, uh, social Dems, like the people that haven't quite reached to the, I guess the end of the rope where they're like, yo, we just have to scrap it. St- refresh it unplug it we're gonna start from scratch because this is fucked this is not salvageable (laughs) it's you know anarchism is asking a lot one of the most i suppose like fundamental 
modern text we have is called demanding the impossible and mm-hmm. you know what is you know what is the point of fighting for liberation for freedom if not to demand the impossible a lot of things were once seen as impossible and now they're taken for granted so you know man call me a dreamer i still think we're a lot nicer than most of the other political types i think that something we've been seeing a lot this year especially is the conservative media and trump drawing this direct line from this kind of idea of there being chaos and quote-unquote anarchy in cities and anarchism literally like when i talk to conservative family members Mm. they associate this idea of you know the chaos of modern society with you know literal anarchy oh that's because of the anarchists (laughs) whereas in reality we just want to be left alone to like build community gardens and do projects and write write letters to our friends in prison and like start vegan food swaps like it was really funny the other day i was walking my dog and i came across this like really lovely community garden that was Mm -hmm. like open with free food like free vegetables for people to just walk in and take and i was telling a conservative family member about that. I just stumbled across this beautiful garden and they're like, oh, who started that? I was like, oh, it's an anarchist mutual aid project. And they were just silent. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't process it. But yeah, like so when you see Trump designating Antifa as like a terrorist mm-hmm. organization or Attorney General Bill Barr designating cities like Seattle, Portland, New York as anarchist jurisdictions. What would you say to people who actually believe this? Like what basic facts about these movements and their activities are they getting wrong? All of them. <laughs> it's it's, just, it's typical uh, fear mongering, scapegoating, like it's red and black scare, I suppose, at this juncture. It's just... <laughs> the the ideologies of anti-fascism and of anarchism inherently challenge the i mean any presidential administration because the u.s is fundamentally like a neo-fascist state but particularly this one that really leans into it um in terms of anti-fascism being designated as anything it's absurd because as somehow joe biden managed to even say it's not a group you can't designate an ideology as a terrorist group because it's not a group there's no like antifa cards or like like antifa general i guess it's it's stupid obviously like there are anti-fascist groups of people that operate but that's not i've seen so much discussion of this and it's sort of like screaming at a wall after a certain point where it's like the sky is blue, the sky is blue, and someone stood next to you saying, the sky is red. It's like, there's only so many words you can waste on that person. And in terms of this anarchist jurisdiction nonsense, I wrote about it for NBC, of all things. And it's, it's absurd to, to like, like Portland, Seattle, and New York City, these, like, massive glittering hubs of corporate commerce and violent gentrification and police brutality like that's what your idea of an anarchist jurisdiction is when i mean if you really want to see what it looks like when anarchists are not in charge when anarchists actually are able to determine what's going on you could look at rojava in northern syria where they've it's been six years or so now where they've had this democratic confederalist autonomous zone that's largely run by women that's a feminist sort of eco focused 
it's not ent- entirely anarchist, but it operates on tons of anarchist principles. You could look at Rajab, or you could look at the Zapatistas, look at Chapas. Like, there are places in the world where no one is in charge and where people are probably living a lot better than the majority of working class people in New York City or Seattle. With the anarchist jurisdiction thing here, it's almost like these movements have become these kind of boogeymen in this larger culture war between the Democrats and Republicans. It's just a word that Trump can throw around to try to justify screwing over blue states and make Joe Biden look bad. Which is bonkers because we hate both of them. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> the, one of the things is this, you know, conservative whatever tick of being like, oh, Antifa are Democrats. Like, no, we hate the Democrats. We hate mm-hmm. the Republicans, too. We are not a we're team. No one. Twenty twenty. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, like Democrats probably hate anti-fascists and other leftist activists even more than republicans because in their eyes we make them look bad by you know asking for more than the barest minimum scraps that they deign to throw us from the master's table none of them are on our team and none of us are on their team it seems like the words antifa and anarchists are often conflated by people who don't understand these movements how would you describe the difference between the two it's, I mean, it's pretty simple. All anarchists are anti-fascist by necessity. Not all uh, anti-fascists are anarchists. A lot of them are because it makes sense. That's probably in anarchist communities and it's probably where you're going to come across the concept first. I mean, prior to 2016 when it became, you know, the hot new thing, um, you were, probably weren't going to come across discussions of anti-fascism in just general progressive or socialist whatever spaces. And usually, I mean, it's been an anarchist thing since the jump. But um, yeah, they're they're closely related. But like, one is a political ideology that has been, you know, percolating since like the 18th century, if not 17th century, and the other is a broad. I mean, anti-fascist action is something that arose in Germany to protest the Nazis and spread throughout the world as a militant response to the fascist creep and anti-fascism writ large is generally it is what it says on the tin it's to oppose fascism by any means necessary and there are a lot of ways to be an anarchist but there are even more ways to be an anti-fascist right because i mean to oppose fascism you do not have to just go out and punch a nazi you can provide child care for people who want to go out and punch nazis or you can (laughs) honestly like it's not the most radical avenue but like honestly like if you want to be like a nice democrat writing letters to your senators being like hey proud boys suck like can you do something about this that's an anti-fascist act because you're trying to oppose fascism it's pretty easy to be an anti-fascist and it's not it doesn't necessarily have to come down to street violence it's a very small amount of it the bulk of the work especially post 2016 has been in identifying tracking and exposing fascists and fascist organizing online it's incredibly important work like identifying your local fascists like that is a way that you can protect your community posting posters of a couple local neo-nazis around the neighborhood that's gonna let black and brown people know that they need to keep an eye out because there are monsters lurking you know like it's not just all punching nazis even though that is also fun and good (laughs) 
I guess what what just still has me scratching my head is that like inherently in its name, anti-fascism, really like nothing controversial about that to me. But how did that suddenly now get twisted into this overall narrative of it being like the militant, violent arm of the far left? Because the media doesn't know what the fuck it's talking about. And the media, not even like the conservative media is a lost cause. They're just a, a howling void. But the, the general mainstream liberal and center media, um, I mean, they're so terrified of the thought of violence or of rebellion or of any actual level of resistance that goes beyond a polite march now and then. Like, they absolutely contributed to the demonization of people that decided they needed to take matters into their own hands. I mean, at the inauguration where 200 some people were kettled, abused, locked up, and then threatened with over 70 years of felony charges. Many of my friends among them, the big story was, Oh, Richard Spencer got punched. Is it okay to punch a Nazi? Like how many think pieces did we see? How much discourse did we see around? Is it okay to punch someone who wants to commit genocide on literally everyone who doesn't look like him? That was the discourse we were seeing because of this, this absurd respectability politic and this absurd obsession with objectivity and both sides of them and just this craven impulse to not just get clicks, but to sort of hold on to this moral high ground that some journalists seem to think that we have access to, whereas they're actually just muddying the waters and setting the stage for even more brutal state repression of people who are actually trying to make a difference. I remember specifically Jake Tapper has been like wringing his hands about Antifa violence and like platforming actual fascists like Andy Go and just mm. these people don't understand the danger of what they're doing. And now they're like, oh, no, that Trump might be going after protesters. Where did that come from? Where do you think it fucking came from, genius? And then there's this whole thing where because the mainstream media paints this specific picture of anarchists, then there are these other groups like the Proud Boys or even like the Boogaloo Boys who sort of like exploit that image in order to creating fermenting chaos or whatever, as people say. They've seized on the the branding that was made available to them by the mainstream media, by the conservative media, and use that as a way to sort of whitewash their own image and be like, oh, we're just protecting our communities against these violent Antifa terrorists. Like, we're the good guys. We're patriots. And that has allowed them, them up until fairly recently, to fly under the radar. Boogaloo Boys, they're a newer phenomenon. They're not really looking for legitimacy from anybody. But like some researchers who I think are working in bad faith are trying to be like, oh, well, half of them are like, they're like kind of a lefty thing. Like, no, mm -hmm. they're an anti-government thing. That mm -hmm. does not mean, that's not inherently leftist posture. Look at the Bundys. Like, look at Timothy McVeigh. Like, hating the government is a pretty, for lack of a better word, pretty bipartisan thing to, do, to mm -hmm. like act. You know, I hate, like me and my dad bond over hating the government. I'm coming from the left. He's coming real far from the right. Mm -hmm. The U.S. political discourse has been flattened and sort of neutered so much that people don't really realize that there's anything out there beyond Democrat and Republican. And, like, maybe a couple sad little independent, like, Green Party people out there. Mm -hmm. Like, normal, regular-ass people don't really know what's out there unless someone comes to them and is like, here's some information about what we're up to. And for so many normal, well, perhaps formerly normal people now, Facebook is where they're coming across that stuff. The media is really, really failing in this current moment. And it's really, it's dangerous 
because at this point there's nobody in power is on our side right you would never think they would be but to have ostensibly lefty or liberal or just sort of nice media people actively working against anti-fascism it's not a great feeling the thing that i find particularly dangerous about the scapegoating of these movements is that it can sort of pin problems in cities that should be probably attributed to the failures of law enforcement or the government's handling of the pandemic on these movements. There's this narrative like New York has gone to shit. You know, it's just all it's all violence. And like you can't you're not safe anymore if you walk outside that gets attributed to like BLM and these movements. And when in reality, it's like de Blasio not opening the purse strings and Cuomo being more interested in going on the TV than actually taking care of people. Exactly. It's like, oh, what about the fact that the stimulus has not been renewed and people went from having like decent unemployment to sometimes in New York making like 200 bucks a week on unemployment or obviously policing. Yeah, letting, you know, a violent racist gang police the streets with absolutely no no fear of retribution no fear of consequence and to have every politician in the city licking their boots and saying thanks boys whenever they murder someone new you'd think that people might be a little upset about that it's just so 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 bizarre to me there's just not really any room on these major media stages for people that are gonna say stuff like that because there isn't really that much of an appetite to allow people with not even anarchists, but just a general leftist perspective into these spaces because, you know, they have a lot of things to say that those people don't want to hear because they're part of the elite and they are the the rich that we want to eat. You know, like those those kind of people don't really have a real stake in making anything better for anybody but themselves. So why would they invite someone like me or you onto their show to talk about how everyone on their team is fucking up? So Kim, what what are some of the challenges you face as a journalist who also publicly identifies as an activist? It's funny to think about that question because I've sort of been dealing with it on various levels since I was like 15, you know, because so when I started writing about heavy metal, I was a teenage girl and then I became a young woman and now I guess I'm just a regular woman. So like basically my entire career my just doing that career has been a political act because I've always been a woman doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like straight and cis and white. So like clearly not really that much of an oppressed woman, but still even just being uh, like a straight white cis lady in a space that is so heavily dominated by cis dudes as metal. Like I've been dealing with people being mad that I exist and mad that I have opinions since I, before I could drink. And now that's sort of translated into the this this much larger stage that kind of caught me off guard. But in a way, I was also sort of ready for it. You guys know how much I had to deal with with like harassment and trolling and just being stalked and crazy Nazis when I was at Vice. Mm-hmm. And then since I've been kind of cut loose into the freelance world, 
it's gotten scarier just because the platforms of people being mad at me have gotten a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. And in terms of being an activist, obviously I've gotten much more vocal about my politics and my stances. The biggest kerfuffle that I have found myself in was in, it was last year, Tucker Carlson got really mad at me, specifically I had some of my tweets and did a whole segment about how I'm terrible and I'm uh, supporting, what was it, inspiring terrorism and all this. He had a whole fit about me. And because of that, I lost, uh, I had been working on a piece for NPR Music, a place that I had been contributing for like the past 11 years, like for ages. Um, I was working on a little thing for them. And some senior director at the station, or I guess at the company, called me and said that I wasn't allowed to contribute anymore because of my activist stance, Mm -hmm. which was fucking wild. So I was like, I've been writing about like pretty political stuff here for a very long time, but he had mentioned NPR in his little segment, so clearly they, you know, they freaked out, got cold feet. So that was more of a, I mean, that wasn't great. Um, I tweeted about it and I got a whole bunch of new work from it. So that kind of worked out. And then there's a, a side note to that whole that whole uh, situation, that whole terrible week. I had been about to start a job, like an editor job at this, this pretty big publication. You know, salary, get some health insurance, set up mm-hmm. kind of job. And then they, they called me and were like, yeah, they had had a couple little kerfuffles of their own like they they had a couple twitter blow-ups and like they're feeling really skittish i guess and the higher-ups decided that they didn't want to hire me because they were afraid of getting any more bad press so it's bad press from the like fox news yeah they're like oh well tucker carlson was yelling about you so i guess we shouldn't hire you because what if they yell at us and i'm like okay well that's that's so dark sounds like a personal problem and then of course like (laughs) nothing ever happened and after like i've just gotten like things have gone progressively better for me in terms of freelancing since then so clearly if people i mean some people like what i had to say and the ones that don't necessarily agree seem to like my writing so you know it's i I think it has been um i think the fact that i am so public and vocal about these things i think it would have been a much more difficult thing to do or much more difficult uh, avenue to find success or anything like that if I had been a younger less established writer and especially if I wasn't a white woman like that gives me like you know the sort of magical privilege pedestal where I can kind of I can get away with saying things that other people who don't have that privilege don't have if I hadn't come from working advice and having a bunch of cool bylines then just kind of keeping it moving in that direction I have so many friends who are also anarchists or also anti-fascists who have no problem sharing their views who are freelancing who have a hard time placing their stories and who have a hard time connecting with editors mm-hmm. and you know maybe they're seen as more of a risk you know would i in good conscience be able to tell someone younger and newer like yeah totally just hang like keep it all throw it all out there say whatever the fuck you want like fuck them like i don't know i feel like it's harder to do that if you don't already have a base or some kind of established Mm. career people don't like to hear that stuff because it makes them think and it makes them feel a little uncomfortable i mean to me what's wild about the stories you shared about you know losing work because of your activist stances is that you know the public reason 
compensated for not letting somebody like you write would be, oh, it, it goes against our ethical standards of objectivity, when clearly that wasn't happening before this kind of like bad PR look that it generated. Do you think that this time calls for a new understanding of what the journalist role entails, especially at a time when journalism itself, like science, is sort of being described by our own president as a vocation that is inherently partisan? Like journalism itself has become politicized and like associated with a certain, I guess, like more to the left perspective to begin with. Do you think that the objectivity mandate is something that it, you know needs to be kind of reevaluated well yeah i mean objectivity is fake i mean there's no such thing as objectivity because i mean <laughs> in in media and journalism to say you know you have to keep an objective view that generally defaults to like a straight cis white dude's view that's seen as the the norm or like the baseline mm-hmm. and so it's already skewed but, you know, yeah, we're finding ourselves at a time where we're having to justify our very existence. It's kind of in being a journalist is like an inherently activist act, one could argue, in a lot of ways right now. I do think it is concerning that journalism is constantly being denigrated and seeing it chipped away in terms of power and reach. I mean, what's the decimation of local news is a crisis for everybody who is interested in learning about what's happening in this country. Like local news is the backbone of so many communities Mm -hmm. and has been destroyed. Digital media, as we know, is a hellscape that is almost impossible to navigate or thrive in if you don't know the right people or have the right background. Uh, Even like major legacy newspapers are having this reckoning over, you know, over institutional racism, over generational divides, over you know their lack of real backbone when it comes to challenging entrenched power structures and white supremacy at large it's you know media of the the media and journalism itself generally has a lot of work to do it could definitely use a little more support from the powers that be um you know we're gonna if nothing is done we're gonna turn around one day and there won't be anything left but fox news and cnn and facebook and next door (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. And that's a horrifying <laughs> prospect. Like, I think journalism is really important. I think of it as more as a trade than anything, you know, mm-hmm. like you learn how to report, you learn how to talk to people, you learn how to do all the stuff that goes into putting a story together. Then you go do it. I mean, you don't got to be you don't have to church that shit up. You know, we're telling stories and we're telling people what's happening and we're giving them facts about what's happening in the world around them. And we're sharing perspectives. Yeah, it's it's important and it's worth saving. I'm just not sure I trust anybody who's been trying to do it yet. I think there's a case to be made maybe for being transparently subjective, perhaps, in journalism as opposed to covertly subjective and using the language of objectivity to couch that. There's no such thing as objectivity. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone, every reporter is coming from somewhere. From they have their own identity, they have their own background. What somebody may view as objective fact, others may view as a controversial leftist statement. Like institutional racism is real. That is a fact. But there are some journalists and writers who would argue with that, or try to couch that, or try to spin that as you know just a subjective, hysterical conspiracy. I mean, at this point, facts are, they're not negotiable, 
but there are so th- things that you'd think would be settled are now being called into question. And I don't know that, you know, mainstream media and the, uh, that many journalists in position of power are doing the best job of really, you know, sticking to that. Most things in life are gray, but there is still a lot of black and white left. We live in a world where even citing a scientific study or scientific experts is considered political. It's depressing. And as, you know, as journalists, it's really frustrating to think that no matter what we do, some people just aren't going to believe anything we say. But I guess that's no reason to stop saying it. For sure. Maybe say it louder than ever. I want to pivot a little bit back to the work that you've been doing now. You know, labor is an intrinsic element of the cultural conversation right now. But historically, especially in the U.S., it's been kind of marginalized or siloed as far as being, you know, a mainstream topic. You've been doing a lot to bring that conversation into more of, you know, I hate to use the word mainstream, but into a more mainstream fold and into, into popular conversation, whether it is your Teen Vogue column about labor, which is so cool to think about young women growing up and reading and understanding the working world they're heading into and what are their rights and what are their precedents, to, you know, casting light on communities that you really wouldn't associate with unions or activism, such as professional wrestlers, the sideshow community, So tell us a little bit about, you know, your book and how you conceived of it and how your book and reporting fit into the way that labor is now sort of becoming part of the cultural conversation right now. Right. Well, I mean, at the heart of it, every story is a labor story. You know, any story that you want to tell, like there's an angle there, whether it's some and even like the the driest political like, oh, the Senate voted on some random bill today. Like, okay, fine. But I don't know. What do the people that are cleaning up those chambers think? What are the people that are working in the cafeteria that they think about it? You know, like those are the things that I'm interested in. I don't care what rich and powerful people have to say. They mean nothing to me. I care about what everyone else has to say. And I suppose um, in terms of this book, <laughs> I have a pretty big personal library. Uh, I'm aiming for like the Bell Beauty of the Beast vibe, you know, the room someday. I have a lot of labor books and not all of them, but a large percentage of them are, you know, kind of dense, a little dry, which I love, love a dry history book. Fuck me up with them. But uh, they're not the most accessible, you know, they're like giant tomes or they're all written or a lot of them are just written by these, these very smart and talented and academic older white dudes. It's for like your college sociology class or something. Yeah, there's there's not that much um like a snappy narrative sometimes takes a backseat to the facts. The facts are really important, but am I going to want to take this book on the subway to read at, you know, on the way home from a protest or something? Maybe not. And obviously there are books like that out there, but they're just not they just don't get that much attention because labor isn't the sexiest topic. And even now in some in some publications, it's kind of been folded into the business section or into the bigger economic section. Nobody wants to read that. Right, when it Why should be part that? of the culture section, actually. Well, I mean, or, I think it, it does fit in. It crosses culture, politics, and business and economics. Like, it, it deserves its own section. That's what we need. We need mm, more. Totally. Yeah. But 
it's just not something that is at the forefront of many people's minds unless they're actively involved in leftist organizing already or if they're in a union or if they're yeah it's really just those two things and why do you think that is well we don't get any education about our labor history in schools it's not something you hear about maybe you hear about like blair mountain or maybe you hear about the coal wars maybe you hear about the bread and roses strike but that probably depends on where you are geographically so kids don't learn about this history. We don't learn about a lot of history in general in this country, but labor doesn't really get that much attention. And also the fact that only, I think as of this year, I think only 10% of like the like of people in this country are union members. Union membership has taken a nosedive since the 80s, since Reagan busted the PACO strike, and since you know right to work laws came to the fore. We've had a hell of a time of it. Uh, membership is down so that just means so many fewer people are in unions so so many fewer people know people in unions or have any familiarity with unions or really know what they do besides whatever they hear in you know republican attacks or democratic talking points it's it's really unfortunate because obviously like so much of the progress that's actually been made in this terrible country is down to the labor movement and or the labor movement working in concert with other movements like look at the civil rights movement like baird rustin was a labor organizer and he also organized the march on washington like it's there's so much overlap and people aren't seeing it because they're not being taught about it they're not encountering it in their their regular political lives except as a talking point they're not encountering it in their work lives because so few workplaces are organized so where are they going to find it unless they're already predisposed towards it? So what did you find when you were working as a union organizer? Like, how did people respond? I remember back when we were organizing at Vice in those early days and we started having these conversations and trying to get people to sign union cards. The only point of resistance that we were encountered, it wasn't that people were anti-union. It was because people didn't know what a union was mm. or how it would benefit us wow. or why we bother. <laughs> and once you have those conversations and kind of explain what's happening and you know lay it all out for people that's when you get people joining unions and becoming interested in unions provided that it is easy to do so which in many states it is not because of republicans and weak real democrats but all that to say in terms of this book i wanted to write a labor book that specifically focused on the sort of the struggles of marginalized people in this country whether it's the Jewish women who organized the March of the 20,000, the garment workers strike in 19th century New York, whether it's the Filipino and Latino workers who organized the Delano grape growers strike. I'm, I'm like going through my table of contents in my head. Um, there, there are a lot of stories that we're not hearing about. We're not reading about because the working class in this country, while it is massively diverse, it's almost majority women and people of color at this juncture the prevailing narrative is that to be working class is to be a white guy in a hard hat who's probably voting for trump and that is a very harmful narrative for a variety of reasons but that also kind of erases and invalidates the amount of work that women and queer people and people of color have put into keeping this movement alive and into winning more rights and better working conditions for millions of people and I wanted to write a book that was like fun and readable and accessible and spotlighted these stories. And I'm interested in telling the stories that, you know, 
that are interesting to me. Like I'm going to write about sex workers and incarcerated workers, people who aren't documented. Like there's so many people that make this country run and that make this country better. And they don't really get any attention because they don't fit into the narratives and they don't fit into these easy little boxes that were handed out. What makes these conversations particularly salient at this moment? I mean, we're in the middle of a massive unemployment crisis. We're in the middle of a massive workers' rights and workers' safety crisis. You know, the fact that we're still under the Trump regime as of now, at least, it means that the Trump appointed National Labor Relations Board has been fucking over people who are trying to unionize and strike and weakening existing labor laws and regulations. Uh, OSHA, the people that you know overlook workplace injuries and hazards, they are not doing their job. They're, they've stopped putting out reports about workplace safety and about coronavirus cases and about, you know, people being killed at work. They have, they, it's really just a total dereliction of duty on the side like the the labor the labor entities in the the government that are trump appointed that are trump sympathetic have just been systematically trying to dismantle the movement from within for the past four years we have a supreme court that is biased against workers and against unions and against the cause of working people and that's probably almost certainly going to get way worse Uh, we still have massive swaths of the country that are you know, locked in the vice grip of right to work laws where it's incredibly difficult to organize, particularly in the South. We have entire industries like fast food or sex work or domestic cleaning that are very difficult to organize that are not protected by uh, most major labor laws. To say nothing of people who are not documented, who are just completely left out, even though they're paying taxes and paying into all these programs they're not allowed to access. And I mean, on top of all that, general status quo we're coming we're in the midst still of this deadly pandemic where you know the the gulf between the has and the have nots has been starkly illustrated to a point where it's just grotesque i mean you have people strolling over to whole foods maybe wearing a mask maybe not and putting all the workers who are barely being paid enough to afford you know sale items at whole foods at risk because they the companies are refusing to pay their workers to stay home 2021 is gonna be brutal i mean i think we need a little bit of hope we need a little bit of inspiration not in like the you know the hopey changey democrat pie in the sky idea but in the you know in terms of labor at the very least working people like look we we got through the depression we've gotten through some really terrible terrible periods in history this is one of them but you know by working collectively we might have a shot you know look at what we've done look at where we've been maybe this will give us a blueprint for where we got to go on that note you know we're this is something we've talked a lot about on this show as well is that we're seeing a lot of People right now, especially in the creative industries, kind of wake up to labor issues. We're seeing industries like journalism and the music industry that historically really haven't organized, especially the music industry, starting to have these conversations for the first time. Um, And, you know, you're seeing that with Lyft drivers, you know, which is just a new industry um, and with gig workers. Do you think that these conversations will sustain momentum? 
and will translate into action? And what obstacles do you see to that would keep that from happening? Well, yeah, even if we end up with a democratic administration, that's still they're still not going to do anything real that benefits workers. We're always going to be the underdog. We're always going to be coming up against these struggles. Maybe it'll be a little bit better under a Biden administration. You have to have a little bit of hope, I guess, because otherwise, what, what else have you got? Um, in terms of momentum, yeah, I think we've seen a massive upswing in organizing in obviously in digital media, but we've also been seeing it in the white collar nonprofit sector. We've seen it in the legal sector, obviously in the gig economy, as you said, fast food worker organizing is still going in the sex work industry. I know of multiple um, like stripper and dancer groups who have been organizing, you know, politicians are never going to be my favorite, but Bernie Sanders did do a service to a lot of working people in this country by elevating the idea of, you know, caring about the working class, caring about labor, kind of bringing those those issues to the uh, the forefront in a, in a way that usually they are not afforded. And then the, you know, economic and social and cultural devastation that this pandemic has wrought, I think has shown people like, well, we need something to fall back on. We need to work together and do something like none of these people in power are going to take care of us. Like we got to do it ourselves. That's why you've seen so many of these mutual aid groups popping up, which is an anarchist principle, by the way, you guys are welcome. Um, I mean, we've seen, we, it's been slower going in the tech industry, but it has been, there has been movement and, you know, all you need is a spark really for these movements to take place and to spread like wildfire. I think that we're we're beyond the spark. I think that there are fire signal fires being lit. And I think that there really is no way to put them out because even if things get a little bit better, they're never going to be good enough. And people have realized, like, you know, we're going to have to fight to make things better. We're going to have to go to a bunch of meetings and do a bunch of phone calls and do a bunch of boring hard work to make things a little bit better for us and for our coworkers and our friends and our kids. Like, whether or not it's in a creative industry, like or in a more traditional industry like manufacturing. Like, we're all workers. We're all selling our labor to try and survive under this capitalist system. Like, the more people realize that, and the more people realize that working together to bargain collectively and to fight collectively, you know, is kind of our only hope, then the more new unions and new organizations and new worker centers we're going to see. And I'm hoping that, you know, the, the work that I do goes a little tiny bit of a way towards helping helping move that along something i wonder about is whether i think we saw this a bit with bernie sanders and his message like whether there is a possibility that the country could come together more around these issues or you know we live in a world where it feels like different groups are working with completely different sets of facts and cannot even have a conversation or agree even on like the frames of argument. Do you see labor as something that could be a unifying force or like some kind of way out of this impasse? That's an interesting question because it's sort of, it sort of assumes that labor is an inherently progressive kind of lefty entity. And historically, like, most of the time, yeah, it has been, but we do still have to deal with conservative and right wing and outright fascist unions like police unions, quote unquote unions, or the unions that represent the border control or corrections officers or even I mean, there are some 
kind of regular unions, a lot of them are scattered throughout the building trades that are pretty Republican leaning, that are pretty right wing. I mean, labor is is not a monolith. It is a very fragmented and sort of complex mm-hmm. uh, system, I would say. But in ter- like if you break it down to a to the micro level, macro micro level, I think, in terms of individual people relating to one another, individual workers relating to one another, I think that there is there is potential there, right? Because you know there are a lot of people in this country who are in unions because that's part of their job. My dad's in a union. My granddad and my uncles and everyone in my family are in unions. And they're also like crazy rednecks from the backwoods who do not trust the government, but they trust Democrats less than Republicans and have some terrible ideas about most things. We don't see eye to eye on really anything except hating the government and being happy about being in a union. And I guess there is a little bit of potential there if you try to connect with people on, you know, what we call the bread and butter issues or hating your boss or trying to get more overtime so you could afford to buy something for your kids. Like there are ways to connect person to person and like small group to small group. I don't know if we would see any kind of massive overarching movement that would really solve a lot of the problems we have because even you know even the labor movement there are massive problems with racism with misogyny homophobia transphobia xenophobia like it's not it's not perfect it needs to do a lot better so it's it's messy but i guess like i said before you have to have a little bit of hope and you gotta try at the very least i don't think labor is gonna solve the the issue of your your racist QAnon uncle spouting off on facebook or boogaloo militia freaks trying to gun down antifa i don't know what fixes that besides you know hitting the refresh button on the whole country but nobody wants to listen to anarchists so i'm not sure you mentioned earlier like every story is a labor story people come home from work and the thing that is on their mind is you know how they were let down by their boss or their worries about paying the bills and I just think it's interesting that it is kind of a unifier in a way, these issues. Yeah, like everybody, well, I suppose not everybody in this country, but almost everybody has to work and almost everybody has to deal with an asshole boss at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. And if you can connect under, over small things like that, it does leave an opening to connect on bigger things or at the very least come to an understanding on bigger things. Well, Kim, how can people follow your work? I'm terminally online, so you can always follow me on Twitter. I have a Patreon that where I you know, post all my, my work and sometimes other little bonus essays and stuff. Sounds good. Well, Kim Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure as always. Of course. Anytime. That's it for our show. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is composed by Mark Donica. To check out more by Kim Kelly and other episodes of The Culture Journalist, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. You can also rate us or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.